Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you are well. I'm here with my good buddy, Jeff Snyder. We've got a lot to talk about. These esoteric curves are really predicting that we are going to have a hard landing instead of a soft landing. We're going to get into that. But before we do, I think, Jeff, that's what you say on your podcast, isn't it? I want to tell everyone about Rebel Capitalist Live. You got to get your tickets ASAP. Mr. Jeff Snyder himself is going to be one of our keynote speakers. It's in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. So if you haven't gotten your tickets, you need to do so ASAP. On the channel, I hear all the time in the comments, George, I understand there's most likely a recession coming. I understand that the government, uh, they're taking away our freedoms every day. But what should I do about it? Well, the very first thing that you should do is get your tickets to Rebel Capital Live. The speakers are going to be incredible. Jeff, Peter Schiff, Lynn Alden, just to name a few. So go to rebelcapitalslive.com and get your tickets today. All right, Jeff, let's get into the esoteric curves, my friend. The Eurodollar <laughs> futures market, uh, the twos and tens, if you want to start basic. What are they telling us about the rest of 2023? Well, since the last, uh, really since the beginning of April, maybe the last week or so, we've kind of moved into the sort of the empire strikes back. The Fed hawks are striking back. I mean, we've had Christopher Waller just recently, a couple other Fed officials saying, yeah, we did such a good job last month. Our biggest <laughs> risk is back to being inflation again. Forget the right. banks. We haven't yet had any other failures. So now you've seen the curves back up a little bit in interest rates trying to price in. Well, if the urgency of March has dissipated, which, it's, which it appears to have done, which is not unusual. That's how these crises go. There are always ebbs and flows in all of them. Um, it's not surprising that the Fed would say, we did a terrific job. Everything's fine. Let's talk about inflation again. That's not surprising either. And so the entire curve, whether it's URL future, these esoteric curves, as you say, they should they they need to stop being esoteric. They need to be on everybody's, uh, right, right, the, yeah. right in everybody's vocabulary. But They've backed up a little bit in, in just terms of nominal level. The the inversions haven't really changed, which is really the market saying with the urgency of, of last month's banking issues sort of receding. Uh, it's been you know over a month since then. Um, sure, the Fed might get another rate hike or two in before the the real the real consequences of everything start to show up, whether it's macroeconomic data or more importantly. In the macro economy itself, because we don't really care about the Fed and what the, what the Fed does. It's really about how does it impact the markets and the real economy. And so markets are saying we don't we're not, it's not as urgent as it was last month because, you know, ebbs and flows in crisis. But we're still expecting the fallout to hit at some point in the near term future. Can you tell the audience about the Fed's curve? What you know, what they used to say they pay attention to. Now they're saying, oh, yeah, that that thing that we always said that we really pay attention to. Well, now we don't really pay attention to that. But it, it, it's 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 the um, the three month uh, forward. What, can you explain it's that? A near term? They call it the near term forward spread. It's the yeah. current three month rate compared to what the what the market says the three month rate will be in 18 months. Right. And so last year, the yield curve inverted, the two-year, 10-year spread inverted. Back in March, right when everything was going on, oil prices was going up, the market said, yeah, this is going to be bad. And the Fed said, no, 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 no. We don't pay attention to the two-year, 10-year. Long-term rates, that's crazy. We watched the near-term forward spread. And at that time, the near-term forward spread was relatively steep, and it is actually getting steeper. Around June, it started to flatten. And then in November, the near-term forward spread finally inverted, and you heard absolutely nothing from the Fed. It was as if mm, the near-term yeah. forward spread just fell out of existence, didn't ha didn't uh, 
It just didn't matter anymore, apparently. Well, the near-term forward spread got really inverted in January and February, which suggested the market was really getting pessimistic about everything, whether the real economy or in the monetary system, even before we got to February and March. And so the near-term forward spread, like a lot of others, has steepened out a little bit, but that's that's not good steepening. That's because three-month rates have been moving in the wrong direction. Right now, the near-term forward spread still inverted, but... It's, you know, the Fed is saying, we don't care. We don't watch that anymore because we have the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate is stellar. And you never have a recession when the unemployment rate is this low. It's, you can just see the level of denial and how the narrative always shift. As, every, as events continue to move in the same direction, it's always trying to stay one step ahead of those events by denying everything that you just said a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Near-term forward spread, what's that? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, you know, I think you'd get a kick out of this tweet that I posted uh this morning look at this i say so and this is with the unemployment rate at 3.5 percent. i started renting clothes instead of buying <laughs> buying them and now i'm saving 53 dollars per month this is an article on cnbc today yeah i know it's it's right like uh, consumers are labor markets robust consumer spending is really strong everything's great uh, as Waller said just a couple of days ago, you know, the economy's at risk of being too strong despite all these rate hikes. I mean, we got to continue to worry about inflation, never mind all of the stuff we see everywhere else. Yeah. So one thing I'd like to get your opinion on is the fact that bank deposits are declining and, and declining rapidly. I mean, I just saw a chart that that Ronnie Stuferlay put out. Let's let's actually go to that. And I'd like your take on this. And um so this is the percentage change from a year ago with bank deposits. I just did a live stream on this. And look at that. I mean, it's just, I mean, you, you obviously it went up because of the stimulus checks. Right. And it, we would expect it to come down. But now it's not just come down to like kind of the average level. It, it's negative. So how, how does that work? And, and what are the ramifications of having deposits go negative? Is this strictly a result of people moving savings into money market funds that go into reverse repo? Is it just simply people buying T-bills and then Janet Yellen paying off banks so it goes to deposit heaven? Or is it, you know, how, <laughs> how do we measure this? Because I try to look at loans and leases. And right now, I did that this morning, loans and leases are actually declining. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, uh, they've gone down by $100 billion. Huge decline. So how do you reconcile all that? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. Remember the 2020, 2021 period was a lot of distortions. Um, the, the the federal government essentially borrowed treasury cash, which came from overseas. It came from everywhere. So it then it then became a deposit when they deposited those funds into individual accounts. Right. As they winding down some of these efforts, some of that stuff just disappears. You know, this we had this problem in the 1970s, too, with banks shifting liabilities to money market funds. The deposits still shouldn't disappear. They should just be transferred someplace else because a money market fund usually has a deposit with the bank somewhere. Um, except in the case where those transfers take place to from inside the U.S. to outside the U.S., then they kind of disappear. Or but they don't really repo, disappear. Right? They're just moved to a, to a place that's outside the coverage of the data, or but it can go into reverse repo through the money market fund, right? Well, yeah, they can go from there. They can go anywhere, right? Because uh, then now they're in the black hole, the offshore system. They can go into repo. They can go into reverse repo at the Fed. They can go to some other lending environment, uh, uh, some other kind of um, right, short-term instrument swaps. Yeah, once in the I mean, money market fund, yeah. 
Yeah. So once they're in the money market fund land, it's basically out there somewhere. Okay. That's a great point. So let's say we've got all these dollars offshore in the Euro dollar system. We've got, I mean, last time we talked, we guessed it might be a hundred trillion dollars outside of the United States on balance sheets. So you have a lot of that. Well, not a lot, but you have some of the hundred trillion coming back into the United States, buying treasuries as an example, or us assets. And that's going to make the, the bank deposit skyrocket. And now we could see a part of, there's obviously several variables, but one of those variables that might not be uh, obvious is now those entities are selling and taking those dollars back offshore. And that's having a, a significant impact on that, on the total bank deposits that we're seeing. That's, you know, that's the problem because smaller regional banks that, sh you know, they're the ones that are experiencing most of the deposit, the flight for lack of a better term. And, you know, so the money doesn't disappear. It goes from small regional banks and it migrates either to larger banks or in cases of where investors are seeking higher returns, they're the ones go driving money market funds. But the smaller banks should be able to just borrow those funds back in wholesale markets. It's, you know, it's not like the, the you know, the it's not like the old days of a, a bank run where people actually took physical cash out of the banking system and stored it under the mattress, which meant it was unusable in any format. What we're seeing is an, a, sort of the unwinding of all the distortions that were created in 2020 and 2021, which they were massive amounts of distortions. And part of those distortions was an influx of deposit cash into these small regional banks. Mm. And these small regional banks made the mistake of thinking this was permanent because right. they were told this was permanent. Everybody in the world said, prosperity this is money it's it's money printing it's just going to stay like this forever yes the bullwhip so, effect yeah so silicon valley bank sort of took that to the next extreme saying not only was this per i mean we're in we're in silicon valley we've got all this vc money look at the nasdaq flying and stocks and everything else the good times are going to be here forever for us right. and so they created not just an asset structure but also liability plans that were ill-suited for these distortions and part of these distortions unwinding is that deposits ended up moving, migrating at first very slowly away from regional banks. You could see this uh, coming for a, quite some time. Um, regional banks started to access the Fed's primary credit last, uh, I think it was March or April. You saw, you started to see the primary credit window rise by a couple billion dollars. It was never a huge Which amount. Which is a discount but, window. Yeah, but that, that, that told you that, you know, the cash migration that was started post-2021 had already pushed some regional banks to start using other forms, other forms of funding. Mm. So in a big picture sense, 2023, we're just seeing the, the other end of the supply shock, the other end of 2020 and 2021, where now that you know they injected the funds into the system, the domestic system, they moved around in a bunch of places that nobody seems to have anticipated. And it's left other, you know, some, some parts of the system are, they're dry, they're illiquid, they're inelastic when, and, and they have little, apparently little other alternative to do something about it. Basically are, are with, with the deposits going down, is that something that you're watching closely or it's cause that would be more at a retail level. Are you trying to figure out more what's happening on a wholesale level between the banks themselves? Yeah. I'm more interested in why they were not closing the loop. What is the whole, okay. I mean, because yeah. that's, if funds are migrating to money market funds back in the 1970s, when this happened, uh, obviously, there was no problems because money market funds were only too willing to invest in all sorts of, 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 of short-term credit and opportunity. It didn't matter who it was. Mm, so you had right. this constant circulation. So even though deposits were leaving, um, you know, the traditional retail deposits left and migrated to money market funds, money market funds just sent those funds back to the same banks that lost the deposit. So 
from the banking, the individual commercial bank perspective, what happened was just the liability structure changed because they had they lost deposits, which they wanted to lose deposits because the reserve requirements and federal funds was so high. And they brought it back in wholesale lending, which was easy to get. Yeah, so right, there was no right. problem in constant circulation of funds, even though there was a tremendous structural change in the banking system underway at that time. So today we have a tremendous structural change in the banking system, but there's a problem. It's not going all the way back to where it needs to go. It's, the system is not able to adjust to the changing conditions, which are nothing more than these distortions coming on uh, uh, coming undone. Is it because money market funds are looking at some of these regional banks and saying, maybe you're a little bit less of a, 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 a decent opportunity to invest in? Yeah, that's what I think. I think it's all about counterparty risk. Yeah, I think it has to be, right? Yeah. And it has to be not just counterparty risk, but also counterparty collateral risk. Because, mm. you know, I think we talked about this last time we were, we were chatting that uh, Silicon Valley Bank in a normal, healthy environment, should have been able to go into its loan book and say, you know, I've got a lot of illiquid loans. I'll pull some of these together. I'll transform the collaterals. You know, I'll post, post them with Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or somebody. I'll get U.S. Treasuries. I'll go into the marketplace. But maybe Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan are looking at, at Silicon Valley Bank's loan portfolio and saying, no, nah, I'd rather not. Uh, you can just keep your loans and go out of business. Let me explain that. And then I want to get your take on commercial real estate. I just want to make sure everyone's on the same page there. So guys, what he's saying, we got deposits and those deposits, some of them going into a money market fund because you can get 50% or 50 basis points at Wells Fargo, or you can get, let's say 4.5 in a money market fund. So you put those deposits in there. Normally what a money market fund would do is they would say, so those deposits have now quote unquote left the bank, right? So normally what that money market fund would do is they would take those deposits and lend them out in repo. And then they would go right back into the commercial banking system or the hedge funds or basically stay in the financial economy. They wouldn't go, they wouldn't be parked at the Fed's balance sheet. So Jeff is saying that that's what's concerning him is why are these money market funds not taking those deposits and doing them something more productive that would most likely get them a higher yield? Why are they just parking them at reverse repo where they're completely out of the system? We've never seen this happen. So before we get into commercial real estate, Jeff, let me push back on that. This is not my view, but I know that this would be the mainstream rebuttal. And they'd say, because Jeff, there's just too much cash. There's too much <laughs> cash. They can't, the, the, the money market funds can't deploy all of, of that liquidity into repo because there's just not enough demand. So how would you respond to that? Well, if there was, if we were in an inflationary environment, there would be a tremendous amount of demand. There'd be a tremendous amount of opportunities. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is always too little collateral. Yeah. So you know, you're in. There's definitely we see enough this all demand the time. from Silicon Valley Bank, right? Yeah, not just <laughs> it's systemic, it's system wide. Right. I mean, you look at some of the repo rates, for example. The repo rates are are, are down, not up. They're down. Um, the broad general collateral rate was just uh, last Monday. The one, the first percentile was down to two fifty or two seventy five, something like that. That's not, I mean, that's not too much cash. That's money market funds and other uh, other cash rich entities saying, I don't know who to lend to. I don't have enough people to lend to. Not because there's not enough uh, borrowers out there. It's that they don't have the right collateral. I only want to lend to those who have the right collateral. And so I'm going to lend at even a ridiculously low rate just because it's, I got to lend it something. So they accepted, you know, 275, I think it was. And it wasn't just that, it was tri-party repo too. They're accepting low rates, not because they have too much cash, but because too few borrowers have the right amount of collateral. Or why, right would they collateral. Lend it to, why would they lend it 2.75 when they can do reverse repo? Probably somebody who's not eligible to get reverse repo. 
okay. because not everybody is not every money market fund is signed up not every hedge fund or not every broker is is uh, eligible to receive the or eligible to go to the federal reserve reverse repo window most of the big funds are but it's not everybody there's always some frictions there's always some leakage somewhere but even okay. so i mean the general collateral rate is three or four basis points below RRP as it is, which means the entire repo market is shifted downward. There's there's something structural there that's preventing everything from normalizing and equalizing that's leading to these other distortions. How do you come to the conclusion that it has to be about collateral? Because again, I think the, the mainstream rebuttal there would be just the exact same. They'd say, Jeff, if you're telling me the reverse, the, the actual repo rate is so low, then that means there's too much cash because, because we, they're, they're, they're just flush with cash. And that's why they're willing to lend at such a low rate. Because we see the flip side of that, which is the everything from the collateral perspective, which says there is no collateral. In fact, everybody's desperate to get it. That's okay. why you see four-week treasury bill rates that just right now are 70 basis points less than the RRP. So there's no reason, there's no investment reason whatsoever for the four-week treasury bill repo or treasury bill yield to be that low. That tells you that something else is happening here. There's there's a systemic demand, sustained demand for collateral that has to do with um, the shortfall. In it. Can you talk about a couple of those auctions recently, Jeff, where uh, people have been bidding 0% for some of that collateral that you're talking about? Well, up until last week, the, the four auctions before then, so right after Silicon Valley Bank and then four auctions, they had eight-week bill auctions where... People were bidding for a 0% return on these eight-week bill instruments. And three out of the four auctions, the same four auctions, they were bidding at zero for four-week instruments. So again, they were saying, I will pay the maximum price I have to pay to make sure that I get this either eight-week or four-week bill. Now, right. last week, we didn't have any zero yields at the auction, but it was even, in some ways, the four-week auction was even more remarkable because of how low the high yield was as well as the medium. Um, so the high yield, I think, was 403, which is, you know, 77 basis points less than the RRP. So even if you're not eligible for the RRP, there's no reason why it should be that low because the market should be able to adjust. So maybe you don't get the RRP, but you should go into repo and get only three basis points less than the RRP, not 70, not 75 or something like that. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's an indication. And there's more. It's not just that. I mean, we had a major warning in the swap market. Uh, last week, well, the week before last Friday and then last Monday, it was a huge dive in short-term swap spreads, which indicated either balance sheet constraints on dealers or dealers who were requiring a huge margin call and collateral. And that was, and that was echoed not just in the four-week treasury bills, but we also saw this in uh, Japanese government bond bills. A whole lot of stuff that said, yeah, there was another collateral run in the, in the global system that led to all the same types of familiar consequences that we see whenever there is a shortfall of collateral. Right. I, I want to be very clear there, guys. When you see that uh, there was a, a four-week treasury auction and the interest rate was 4%, that, that doesn't mean that every single bond was purchased at 4%. That just means that's the average. Uh, what Jeff is saying is that it's all over the place. If you look at the individual transactions and that lately we've seen a lot of the, the bids come in at 0%. So I, Janet Yellen, I know that you're, you know, auctioning this off at 4% for most people, but I'm willing to pay you zero or I'm willing to accept 0%, which obviously there's an inverse correlation between the price and the actual interest rate. So that's how much demand is out there 
for that collateral. So Jeff takes that and he says, okay, well, if the market's telling me there's that much demand, then I'm going to assume that the low interest rate that I'm seeing in the repo market is not a result of excess cash, but it's a, a, a result of a lack of pristine collateral. Right. Did I say that right? Did I get that right, Jeff? Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, the last 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 week's four week auction, the high rate was 4.03, which meant that every single uh, every single bill that was sold uh, had a, it was sold at an interest rate less than 4.03. So the right. entire auction was at least 77 basis points below, and it got to as much as 130 basis points below. That's Everybody who showed up at last Thursday's auction was saying, I am willing to pay a huge premium just to get these instruments. Mm, why? Right. And you have to always ask yourself, why? Why would anybody do that? Because you do, you always have alternatives. And the only answer you can come up with is there is something about that instrument that creates such a huge value that people are willing to go crazy for it. Yeah. And the only thing the forward treasury bill yield, or a treasury bill is useful for is the top of the pyramid in the collateral. Is it possible that there's just so much money flowing out of M1 or deposits, you know, like retail, like I can get 50 basis points here. Why am I doing this when I could just buy a, a, a four week T-bill? And is it possible that that's that just retail investors that's driving it down? As far no, as the these, are, these are definitely institutional investors. Uh, you can tell that from the auction, who's bidding and who's doing what. So it's okay. not retail investors because, I mean, again, like you said, George, retail investors can easily get money market funds that are paying so much better than that. There's okay. just no, there's absolutely no investment reason to, to, to accept these low yields and four-week bills. And it's not just the four-week, it's the eight-week too. The eight-week bill yields aren't as extreme as the four-week, but you wouldn't expect them to. Um, but still, there some of the eight-week bill auctions, as I said, 0% low yields. But even last week, you had the median was still, I think, uh, I don't want to go off the top, 460 something. Um, maybe don't quote me on that, but it was still incredibly low. So there's there's huge demand for instruments. And usually you don't see that level of demand for if, if you're, you're talking about as, as an investment, money market funds want treasury bills instead of repo or something like that. They'll still accept maybe a couple basis points in, a, in, in giving up a couple basis points in yield, but not 10, 15, 20, 70, 100. That's that's all about the utility of the uh, treasury bill. Okay, that makes sense. So how do you think commercial real estate ties into this, if at all? I mean, I, I know with a lot of those regional banks, that's where most of that lending came from. So if you have a potential crisis or blow up, whatever you want to call it, with commercial real estate, that could impair their balance sheet. And that, of course, is additional counterparty risk that could be playing into what we're talking about with reverse repo and repo. If I'm looking at, you know, Silicon Valley Bank came to me and said, I've got stuff in my loan book that I want to transform. I want to, I want to put these illiquid loans up as collateral for your collateral, which are U.S. treasuries will go into the repo market and borrow from. And I look at Silicon Valley Bank's assets, like you said, George, it's a bunch of commercial real estate property tied to venture, uh, uh, to venture capital, Silicon Valley Bank or Silicon Valley type firms. Right. I'm going to look at those loans and say, you know, I don't think I want those. I don't think I want them at any haircut or any price. And again, that's part of the distortion of 2020 and 2021, because a lot of these smaller regional banks that suddenly had a lot of deposits said, where should I put these? Where should I lend this cash out? Because it looks like the economy is red hot. And where else? If the economy is red hot, then business is going to be booming. I mean, literally businesses are going to be booming. 
even though everybody is uh, re remote, eventually everybody's going to come back into the office and then demand for real estate. Uh, and it's not just office space, demand for, um, think about warehouses, how many warehouses were built to store all of the goods that we over-ordered for several years. I mean, Amazon built so many facilities. They weren't the only ones. The amount of warehouse space that was built and, and created, especially near port facilities, is just off the charts. Look at how many people they hired. Did you ever see that stat, Jeff? Yeah. They they prior to COVID, they had eight hundred thousand employees. Two years later, they had one point six million. Yeah, it's just insane. That's what. I'm, but I'm, I mean. Anytime there's a distortion like that, it's it's always going to, especially a non-economic, political-driven distortion, it's yeah. always going to lead to a backlash because it's never done for, for, for sane reason. It's usually done for rationalizations and people who tell themselves, these good times are going to be around forever. I can do stupid things because it'll pay off in the end. So, yeah, I, George, I do think that's part of the reason why the market is rejecting, especially small and regional banks, because they're saying, you guys went stupid. You went absolutely insane in 2020 and 2021, doing things that today look not just risky, but downright insane. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually there's going to be a fallout from this stuff. And with with commercial real estate and with regional banks being the biggest uh, biggest supporter of commercial real estate, it's this self-reinforcing process, right? Because commercial real estate, the loans become questionable. That leads to problems in the banks. And then the problems in the banks means they can't support more commercial real estate, which then and they leads have the role of the problems. debt. That's right. And it just, it turns into the vicious cycle. So you have to wonder if the systemic issues that we saw last month were just the beginning of the market adjusting to the downside of the vicious cycle starting to appear. Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Got a quick question for you. Are you someone that realizes we are headed straight for an economic recession, maybe even worse? Do you also realize that the government is trying to restrict your freedom, liberty, and privacy on a daily basis? We've all heard in the news lately about central bank digital currencies, and it's not a matter of if we get them, it's simply a matter of when. But although you know we're facing all of these problems, you don't know what to do about it. How do you protect your wealth or grow your wealth when we're dealing with a very volatile economic environment? Or how do you maintain or increase your freedom and privacy when we have this woke Orwellian government that's trying to micromanage your life? Well, fortunately, got some good news for you. I have set up an event that is focused on helping you, the rebel capitalist, find solutions to these problems. It's all set up to help you build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments. That event is Rebel Capitalist Live. It's going to be absolutely incredible. It's in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. We're going to have speakers like Peter Schiff, Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, Robert Barnes, just to name a few. So to get more information on how you can attend this incredible event, it's going to give you actionable intel that will help you prepare for the rest of 2023 and beyond. Go to rebelcapitalistlive.com, and I will see you in Orlando. So let's go into the Fed. Now they've gone from, uh, uh, okay, we're not going to have a recession. Uh, the economy's booming. It's on fire. Uh, now they've kind of accepted 
that, okay, we might have a recession, but if we do, it's definitely going to be mild. Uh, so they're kind of about six months or maybe nine months behind what these curves, the marketplace has been telling us. And uh, the market is so far batting 100% uh, in this last inversion, that's for sure. So what is the marketplace telling us about the rest of 2023 as far as the rate hikes or the rate cuts? And what does that imply about what will be happening with the overall economy? In the immediate aftermath of last month, um, you saw markets say the rate, rate hikes are done. Rate cuts, once they start, they'll start probably sooner rather than later, and they're going to be a rapid series of them. But as the urgency has sort of faded away, we haven't had any new bank failures, no major uh, major events or disruptions that would force the Fed to say we need to stay on pause. And as the Fed has come out, Fed officials come out more hawkish. Now the market's saying there's a reasonable chance there's another rate hike in, what, a couple of weeks, early May. Yep. That may be another rate hike. But still, we don't know in the short run. The Fed may do another rate hike, maybe two. That's kind of a small possibility, but it's it's still a possibility. But at some point, we still don't know when, some point, the rate cuts are going to start. That part hasn't changed. It's always been about the short run. How far will the Fed be able to go before it's forced to turn around? Last March, it looked like, in fact, uh, you know, the Fed minutes even said that they, a lot of partic participants said, we're done here. Rate hikes are, you know, after everything has gone on, maybe rate hikes should stop right here. So it wouldn't be surprising if the Fed in May says, now nah, we're, we're, we're going to pause here just to see how everything goes. So there is a moderate chance of more rate hikes, probably maybe 50-50 with the next one. But again, the market is still near certain or is, is near certain as possible um, that once the rate cuts start, they're going to come uh, heavy and fast. And that's the important part. That's what people need to understand, because, you know, I think it's common on CNBC or Bloomberg that they say, well, my gosh, this is just a perfect Goldilocks scenario because <laughs> we see we see this gradual disinflation. You know, the CPI was just 5%. It's getting closer to that 2% target. So the Fed can just go ahead and pause, keep things easy, and then they can just gradually start to decrease rates because we have this nice soft landing and then we're, 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 we're back in business. You know, we're off to the races. Where what the market is saying is no 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 you're not going to just pause you're not then you're you're not going to just lower by 25 basis points because we have this Goldilocks economy you're going to drop by 100 basis points because the stuff hits the fan that's what that's what these curves are telling us right now is that correct yeah and even the policymakers are, are trying to fool themselves in the public too because now this okay you know unemployment unemployment rate was really low so there's never going to be a recession and now they're saying well there's going to be a recession. But it's a mild one. It's going to be so mild that it's maybe it's not going to bring down inflation as much as we would like. So now they're trying to say, yes, we're going to have an inflation or we're going to have a recession and it might not even have enough of an impact on inflation. So it's it's is that a goal? I mean, that doesn't sound like it sounds like it sounds like more rationalization than anything. And the market's just saying you people are struggling to come to terms with reality here. What you're really doing is arguing against yourself because you can see how things are developing. You're in denial about the fact that the economy is in real trouble. You're in denial about the fact why consumer prices are de decelerating and even falling. You look at some of the other numbers like producer prices and export import prices and the prices around the world, they're declining. They're not even in disinflation anymore. They're already in out outright deflation. Mm -hmm. And so the market is saying, 
okay, Fed, we see you here, but you're you're having a lot of trouble. You're just arguing with yourself about, you know, you don't want to believe that what's what everybody else can see happening is going to happen. You still want to cling to the idea that everything will be maybe not as good, not as Goldilocks as it was last month or back in February, but still not much of a downside, but uh, enough that uh, it creates a little bit of a, a, a help with inflation and a help with consumer prices. But overall, you know, the Fed is just is, is trying to talk itself into still kind of that soft landing scenario. It's a recession, but it's just going to be a mild one. So a little bit harder of a landing than we thought before. And the market's saying, you know, you guys are just crazy. How much do you think psychology plays into that? Because if I'm Jerome Powell, I mean, I got to be honest. If I'm Jerome Powell, I'm sitting there thinking about legacy. And I'm like, and, and whether it's right or wrong, history remembers Paul Volcker very well. And history remembers Arthur Burns very poorly. You know, he's a human being, just like any of us. He's 65. He's thinking about, you know, how are my grandkids, my great grandkids going to remember me? How is history going to remember me when, you know, when people read economics, tech, uh, economics textbooks in the future? Do you think there's that kind of like that voice in the back of his head saying, listen, if I have to err, I'm going to err on the side of going way too high just so 100 years from now, People don't see me as Arthur Burns 2.0. Oh, I think that's definitely part of what Jerome Powell's thinking. And I think some yeah. of his other policymakers are thinking you're crazy. That's why you saw in the minutes, there's a definitely there's a split in the uh, policymakers where some of them were saying already last March, we need to stop here. Not saying we need to cut rates, but they were saying we need to stop and see how things play out before we start going. But I think you're right, George. I think Powell wants to be Volcker too. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't care if there's a recession or a nasty one because he's going to say, I did that. I did that on purpose. I did this so that I could break the back of inflation. Thank you. You're well. You're, you know, you're welcome, everybody. Um, I think he does want to do that. But some of the other policymakers who aren't going to be remembered because nobody remembers who was on the FOMC besides Paul Volcker are going to say, "Well, hold on. Maybe we need to really think about this first before we try to try to, you know, put our name down in stone here on the, you know, on the uh, pantheon of fame." I think that's that's what what. Powell's biggest challenge will be is getting everyone to go along in the same direction when we've already seen the Fed sort of fracture, which is not unusual in these types of situations because you've got a variety of opinions. You've got a variety of regions, a variety of districts where different things are happening in different places. You know, some of those districts are going to be more heavily exposed to regional bank fallout, fallout and things like that, or others are going to say, There's, I don't see anything here. So I think Powell's big challenge is to get more people on his side than not. And that's why I think the market is saying maybe one or more rate hike. But after that, um, I think a lot of the policymakers on the committee are going to become very uncomfortable unless they start to see data that suggests this was all a big nothing, which <laughs> I mean, what is the probability of that? Right, right. Very, very low. Well, I want to get your opinion on this because I've tried to keep things as simple as I can for just the average viewer. And I said, if you guys really want to kind of know what's going on or when you should get really concerned, all you have to do is just watch the two-year and the 10-year. That's it. That just keep it as simple as possible and just get hyper-focused on that two-year yield. When you see that start to go back toward the 10-year, and then when you see it start to go below the 10-year, that's when you should have all your ducks in a row that's when you should probably have quite a bit of cash or that's when you should be like maximum risk off. Because if you look back throughout history, after the curve is no longer inverted, 
that's when we usually get the kind of economic tsunami, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, that hits the shore. It's not when the curve is actually inverted. So do you think that's kind of a, a good way for just the average person to try to, to understand when this might play out? Yeah, with one caveat. The caveat is like, timing because it's it's never like a straight line. You, you, wish, you wish it was that easy. You wish it was, okay, we have inversion, then a year later, the thing happens, the, the curve uninverts, the two-year goes below the 10 again, and every, it's really simple. You got two, two signals, and that's, that's the, end of the, the end of the story. But you see this bad steepening, as you're describing it, where you know, the 10-year, the initial inversion, the 10-year goes below the two-year, and then it kind of stays there for a while. But it fluctuates back and forth. The inversion doesn't stick around the same level. It goes up, it goes down, it goes back and forth, which is why you got to look around to other things. But um, even when we get into the bad steepening situation, as we saw over the last month, the two-year yield has been incredibly volatile. It had yeah. plummeted, then it went back way up, and then it went down again and back up again and up down again. So even when you're looking for the two-year, 10-year spread or something like that, you just have to be prepared for the fact that it's a longer and drawn-out process. It's not just like the flip of a switch. So even if we get into the bad steepening where the two-year starts to get close to the 10-year, wouldn't be surprised if it bounces back up again and then comes back down and goes back up and back down. And then maybe it'll go below the two-year, the 10-year and then go back up again. It's, it's you have to watch it over time and to see where it's going in, in sort of a general direction of where it's going along with what is everything else doing. So like inversions, you know, think, George, think about back to the two-year, 10-year inversion last March. The curve inverted by a couple of basis points in March and then it uninverted. Oh, it, yeah. stayed un, it stayed uninverted for weeks and yep. then it inverted a little bit more and uninverted. So it's never like a single solid signal that says this is the thing here. It's always a process where it moves in and out because there's so many different opinions being thrown in the marketplace that it goes back and forth over time. And so we're looking for really the consensus or the general direction, not in a short run period, but over the longer run period. I know you hate giving predictions, but I know this is on everyone's mind. So I'm going to ask the question. We've got commodities. We've got the stock market, S&P. We've got the housing market. And especially with commodities and housing market, you know, the supply side is very constrained. So do you, with what the curves are telling us, do you think there's going to be enough demand destruction in order to still bring prices down pretty significantly in those asset classes? Yeah. You look at some of these commodities, it's amazing that the prices haven't gone as much higher than they are, than they have um, oil start, yeah. right, start with that. I mean, China reopening. We got the data from the Chinese government that said they imported a huge amount of oil in March. What happened to oil prices? They went lower. They went lower so much that the OPEC group said, we need to cut production. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think OPEC is telling you that they're worried more about demand than supply, even as China reopening is supposed to contribute a lot toward demand. And it is one after another in commodities. Copper. Copper is kind of stuck around $4, $10 per pound which is, again, supply constraints, all the stuff that went on in Peru, supposedly lots of demand from China that doesn't seem to be materializing. So again, more demand questions, even though there's the supply restrictions. Uh, iron's another one. Iron had a relatively good spring or a good winter up leading up to China reopening. That's rolling over too, which suggests that, you know, it never really got all that high to begin with. So even the commodities are saying, we're more concerned about demand than we are supply, even after the supposedly massive China reopening boom that, that's happening and, and unfolding right now. 
it's not being priced into any of these commodities. In fact, again, OPEC, OPEC said we need to cut production. Yeah, that's a great point. How do you think the how do you think this plays out in terms of monetary and fiscal? So we go, let's say, through to the end of 2023, the yield curve is right. We do have a severe economic recession. What do you think the Fed does? What do you think the government does? Do you think they're going to, it'll be a repeat of COVID where, you know, they drop straight down to zero. They do QE infinity. They support the corporate debt market and whatever else is crashing. And then the government comes in and says, okay, we're going to do 10 trillion in deficit spending this time. And you kind of just have another, and then we're going to distort the economy so much that we're going to create more supply shocks. And then you have another wave of this, the consumer prices or Bottom line, what do you think the response is going to be? Yeah, that's the problem, George, is that the range of possibilities now is is so wide. It's very difficult to think, uh, d- difficult to predict. What is the government going to do? What is the Well, the Fed's easy. We know what the Fed's going to do. Yeah, we know right. what the Fed's going to do. We're going to have QE 35, you know, you know, 10, 20 years <laughs> from now. So the Fed's going to do another QE. Interest rates are not going to go to zero all at once because the Fed needs to, you know, take some time to reassess and do all these things. Even in 2008, it, you know, the, the uh, Fed funds target was still 2% in the fall of 2008. So mm. it'll take some time for the Fed to get down to zero. QEs will probably be easier to restart just because they, that's what they'll do. You know, the Fed's going to come up with at least two or three more four-letter programs because they always invent new tools for everything that goes on. So Even the though Fed they've got is, all the tools. Yeah, they have all the tools and they have to invent more. So that part's <laughs> easy. Um, what the government's going to do, I can, you know, you can very well see the Biden administration saying, yeah, we need to go huge here. We need to spend money on everything. We need to ship funds out the door. But you could also see a lot of the, maybe the, especially the, the left wing part of the Democrat Party say, hold up here. We did this last time and it led to consumer price outbreak that was really hard on the people that we care about. Mm-hmm. So maybe there'll be some pushback against the government spending because of what happened in 2020 and 2021. And among some of the more astute politicians, which is you know not a very high standard, some of them will say, you know, that's one of the reasons we got ourselves into this mess to begin with, not just in consumer prices, but the banking system, all these government distortions proved to be really harmful. So I don't think it's as easy like it was in 2020 for even the Trump administration to say, let's just do a bunch of stuff because of the pandemic, it's easy to justify. We broke the economy, so we should we should offer some kind of solution. Where next time, even no matter how bad it gets, the government say might say, "Well, yeah, it's it's pretty bad, but you know, last time we got involved, it didn't it didn't really lead us to the what we wanted to see over the longer term anyway." But that doesn't mean the government won't do anything. It's just a matter of well, it's not as easy as it was last time. Yeah, because they're not going to take blame for the consumer price increases. I mean, that's just all because of greedy capitalists. And I think that disinflation or maybe even deflation, if you have a significant enough recession or depression, gives them cover to come back in with uh, an increased CARES Act 2.0. Yeah, there's always that part of it too, right? Because even just from a Keynesian macroeconomic perspective, if you have falling prices, then the Keynesians are going to say, we need to do us more. We need to do more. Remember Paul Krugman back in 2008. Oh, no, the these these numbers are nowhere near big enough. We need to make them huge. So there's always going to be that element saying, you know, if it gets bad and we have falling prices, then, yeah, they're going to we need the government to do huge amounts. But I think this time, unlike 2020, there'll be some at least political pushback and it will be it will be bipartisan. It'll be some mm-hmm. on, on the extreme left and maybe some on the extreme right will to get together and say, no, 
maybe we should think about this a little bit first. But the, the government won't do nothing. That, that much we do know. <laughs> they won't just sit back and say, no, this we're just going to let this thing serve. This is not 1920 all over again. They're going to say we need to do something. It's just a question of how much and what actually gets done. That might be a little bit more more difficult to predict. And then what are the unintended consequences? How does it distort the economy even further? That that's uh, Those are all the question marks. Uh, I guess the one thing we know for sure is the rest of 2023 and 2024, uh, it's definitely going to be interesting. That's for sure. Never a dull moment. Yeah, that's the problem, right? You know, that's what, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and Credit Suisse, when that stuff happened, uh, you know, the Fed said, oh, that's the worst. Everything's, it's great. Now that we've got, we've got beyond that, when, the markets, myself and anybody else looked at it and said, oh, see, this is it kind of confirmed what we were th- we were afraid of. And now we realize this is just the beginning, not the end. So what is yeah, it? The, the, it's the, uh, the, the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. Yeah. And you made a great point the other day, Jeff. It, you said, listen, if the Fed would have fixed the problem with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and Credit Suisse, the curve would no longer be inverted. The curve would look great. In fact, it, but it would invert by the 10 year going up not the two-year going down, or uh, uninvert, excuse me, it would right. steepen by the 10-year going up, and we we don't see that at all. So that's basically those esoteric curves saying, no, the Fed didn't fix anything, and the problem is is maybe even bigger than it was before, and the Fed doesn't even know what the problem is. That's it. You know, that's the thing. I mean, why are we listening to these people? They didn't know it was coming. They, they had no idea that there was anything wrong with any of these banks beforehand. And now they're telling us everything is fine. How would yeah. they even know? Right. Because <laughs> they did. They time and time again, whether it was 2008 or 2020, whatever the case may be, they're always shocked and surprised by things that happen when they tell you their job is to not be shocked and surprised and to be proactive and to do, they have all the tools to do all these things, but yet they never use them or they never get used because they're always shocked and surprised by what happens. So, and then they always say, no one could have predicted this. Yes, yeah. That, that, yeah. That yield curve. Yeah. The, 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 for, the near term forward spread or whatever. Sure. That was inverted. Sure. All these things were telling all these red flags, but no one could have predicted this. Yeah. And yes, you know what they mean? They mean they're DSGE models. That's stuff. They, they count on the public to not really do any research and to understand that, you know, we've been we've been talking about these kinds of things for over a year saying, hey, look out, there's there's trouble ahead. They know the public doesn't know these things. The public gets all of its financial and economic uh, uh, opinions and analysis from the financial media and the financial media gets it directly from the Federal Reserve. Right. So, yes, to most people, this does seem like it's unexpected. But I think Warren Buffett made a really good point last week when he said, you know, you need to be a little bit careful here when everybody in the in the country thought everything was fine and good and inflationary one day. And then the next day, the entire country is talking about the banking system. Most people are going to realize there's more to the story here because you don't go from one to the other extreme at the snap of a button or a snap of a finger. Something, you know, even the even the Fed can try it, can't really put those the, the uh, can't put the worms back in the can there. Yeah, great point. All right, Jeff, tell us about Eurodollar University and what you do there. I mean, we've just scratched the tip of the iceberg as far as the the Fed funds futures and the Eurodollar futures market, and uh, but you dive into this every single day, almost every day, every day that I can. Usually about six days a week. Hey, you know what we talked about today? We talked about copper to gold, which is another good one that talks about that the intersection between the real economy, the financial economy, the monetary mm. system. And get this, George, 
When you look at the copper to gold ratio over the last, say, 15 years, and you line that up with the, say, the 30-year swap spread, they're nearly identical. So these are wow. these are esoteric uh, indications that tell you something about all the fundamental pieces that you want to know. The real economy, finance, liquidity, uh, interest rates, inflation risk, all of these things put together. That's what we do at Eurodollar University. You can find us at Eurodollar University on YouTube. That's what George is talking about. Also, Apple Podcast, I think whatever they call that. Um, it's available there in just audio form. And then I have research subscriptions and stuff, memberships where we get into the nitty gritty details. What are these esoteric curves that you can find at our website, which is eurodollar.university. Yeah. And make sure you get your tickets to rebelcapitalslive.com. See Jeff speak live. He's going to be going into this. You can go right up to him, shake his hand, have a beer with him and say, and ask him your question. That one question that you've always wanted to ask Jeff Snyder in every single episode you watch, Jeff, answer this question. Well, now you can do it in real life. Absolutely. You know, that's usually there's, there's so many good speakers there. The, the conversations and everything else is it's, it's, it's worth the attendance just for that. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, buddy. Enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. Oh, I can't wait for it, George. Thanks.